Thanks for listening to this Small Town Theologian special. This bonus content comes from other Reformed pastors and theologians in small towns. You may not recognize their names, churches, or towns, but these faithful men have good things to say for your comfort. God's sovereign grace is active in small towns. May hearing from these men encourage you, and may your life be shaped by what you learn. I grew up in the small and beautiful town of New Holland, Pennsylvania, so this episode is special for me. John Diffenderfer left the Palatinate, the birthplace of the Heidelberg Catechism, and arrived in Philadelphia in 1727, right around the time a little German Reformed church named White Oak Church got its start. That church is now called Jerusalem Church, and I'm the minister. In 1728, John and his family settled in the wooded countryside near what would become New Holland. Perhaps the Diffenderfers knew some of the families who started Jerusalem Church. The settlers escaped religious persecution in Europe, came to the area, and established churches. There has been a Reformed church presence in New Holland since the 18th century. When the German settlers left their homeland, they traveled through Rotterdam in the Netherlands, and the people helped them out. They wanted to pay homage to their friends in Holland, so they named their town New Holland. The first free public school was formed in New Holland in 1787 by the German Lutherans and offered both English and German instruction. Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Nein, ich spreche nicht Deutsch. When I was a boy, my father would sometimes take me to the New Holland sales stables to watch the auction. There was so much to see, and I loved being there with my dad. This auction has been running since the early 1900s. It's among the biggest auctions east of the Mississippi and sells about 10,000 heads of livestock every day. Ronald Reagan campaigned at the New Holland sales stables, and Bruce Springsteen bought some cattle there. Maybe you've seen that blue farm equipment with the name New Holland printed on it. Case New Holland is the second largest manufacturer of agricultural equipment in the world. They sell in over 160 countries, and their headquarters are less than four miles from where I used to live. Every year, New Holland hosts a farmer's fair right on the streets of downtown New Holland. If you're in the area in late September, swing by with the kids. I have fond memories of the fair. Like music? Check out the New Holland Band, the second oldest municipal band in the nation. It was established in 1829 and once played in Washington, D.C. for President Abraham Lincoln. Like coffee and a nice lunch? Check out two places, the New Holland Coffee Company on the West End and Coffee Company on the East End. New Holland Coffee Company is in the same spot where I used to rent movies from Blockbuster Video. Coffee Company is owned by family friends John and Heidi Smucker, so tell them I sent you if you stop by. Situated south of town is Zeltenreich Reformed Church. It's a member of the United Reformed Churches of North America, a solid federation of churches. Zeltenreich has an interesting history. Two churches came from the original Zeltenreich German Reformed Church, St. Stephen's Reformed Church in town and Zeltenreich in the country. The original location where Zeltenreich sits now fell out of use when the original church moved in town to where St. St. Stephen's sits now. But eventually, a new church was formed at the original location in the country because the pastor was accustomed to preaching in German. 
The churches in uh, the church in town preached in English. Zellenreich is situated in South New Holland amidst lush and green farmland, and every Lord's Day, the gospel is being proclaimed in this historic small town church. My friend, Reverend Dr. Robert M. Godfrey is the pastor. He has been an encouragement to me as well as a helpful resource for Jerusalem Church. Reverend Godfrey is ordained in the United Reformed Churches in North America, and he began serving at Zeltenreich in April of 2016. Before Zeltenreich, Robert served for over eight years at Trinity URC in Visalia, California. Robert obtained his Master of Divinity from Westminster Seminary, California in 2007, a good institution, and he received a Doctor of Ministry from Ligonier Academy in 2017. Robert met his wife, Catherine, in California, where they were married in 2008, and they have been blessed with three little girls. He has a love for the small-town church that he serves and prays that small-town theology would continue to spread. Robert is a big fan of the Heidelberg Catechism. We share that in common, among other things, and he is a faithful pastor and expositor. You may like to know that Robert is the son of W. Robert Godfrey, the chairman of Ligonier Ministries in Florida and president emeritus at Westminster Seminary, California. I am thankful for the ministry of my friend, and I'm thankful he's in my hometown heralding the law and gospel. Before you listen to Robert's message, it would help you to hit pause and to read the Athanasian Creed in its entirety. It's not very long. You'll listen better if you do it. Without further ado, here is Reverend Dr. Robert M. Godfrey with a helpful message on the two natures of Christ. This message is much needed today, so drink it in. We'll be looking to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and then we'll skip ahead to read chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, as I'll be making reference to those. So Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Hear now from the Word of God. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions." And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. 
They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And skipping ahead to verse 14 of chapter 2. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So ends our reading from the Word of God. Let us pray together that the Lord would bless His Word to us this evening. O God, our Father, bless Your Word to us this evening. We ask and we thank You for the riches of Your inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. And we ask that You would point us all the more to Your only begotten Son, truly man and truly God. And we come before you in his name asking that you hear our prayers. Amen. So here as we come to this section of the Athanasian Creed, we continue to consider that that important truth, who is Jesus Christ? And I thought it's good to reflect on that very question, who is Jesus Christ? Uh, That's something to consider, that when we're asked that question, if we're asked that on the street, if we're asked that by a friend or a family member, So who is Jesus Christ? Um, Aren't there a number of ways we could answer it? Uh, How are we supposed to answer it? On the one hand, we can certainly immediately turn that into a reflective personal answer, who Jesus Christ is to me, uh, what he has done for me, what he means for me. Uh, We can also want to give an immediate historical answer. Uh, Throughout the ages, many viewed Jesus to mean this. Many viewed Jesus to be this. Uh, Or we can, perhaps a much better answer, want right away to turn to Scripture. Uh, But even then, giving the answer just from Scripture could lead to the many names of Jesus, uh, the many titles of our Lord and Savior, every teaching He has given, every name that He has, every attribute that describes Him. And so when we're asked that question, who is Jesus Christ? What's a good, simple answer to give? Well, that's where the very thing we're considering this evening, uh, the very topic we're reflecting on, the natures of our Savior, is so vital. If you're ever asked that question, who is Jesus? A very simple way to answer it is by remembering these two things, his two natures. A good answer to give is he is the one who's truly God and truly man. The only one of who that statement can be made. And that's the answer we're certainly given throughout the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews with what we just read and reflected on. And certainly what we stood up and proclaimed together, thinking of the the creed, the Athanasian creed. We we see these natures of Christ mainly in the statements beginning at statement 29 where we're pointed to the incarnation, which we considered last week. And then all the way to statement 37... Uh, pointed to the two natures, Christ in his true humanity, the Son of Man in his true divinity, the Son of God. And these two very natures of our Lord Jesus Christ are a wonderful answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? 
He's the Son of God and the Son of Man. But it's very helpful for us to consider how these natures are distinct. And that's what this passage from the book of Hebrews, and as well as the creed we proclaim, is so helpful to do. It's, it's helpful to, to divide, to show the different aspects of these natures of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, and so that's what I want to do this evening, as we consider that this, this definition of Christ, that He is the Son of God and the Son of Man, it's important to think about where there's a distinction. When we're talking about His origin, uh, when we're talking about His perfection, And when we're talking about his equality, when we describe those three aspects, there's a different description when we're speaking of his human nature versus his divine nature. Uh, But just as important in the conclusion, I'm going to return to the idea of his oneness. Uh, Because if all we focused on was his two natures, we could end up leaving uh, cross-eyed, confused, thinking, I always thought it was one Savior. And it is. So while we want to focus on the two natures of Christ throughout the consideration of our text and the statement in the Athanasian Creed, we want to realize that he is one man, one person, uh, our Lord and Savior who is the Redeemer. So the the first thing to consider is, is the origin of Christ. And that's something where we clearly see that Christ has two distinct natures. Because when we think of the origin of the the, the Son of God, uh, His divine nature, we see how He is eternal in His divine nature. But we see that He is truly temporal in His human nature. Uh, Christ is eternal in His divine nature. Clearly, uh, that's something we need to not misunderstand when we make that statement that He is eternally begotten of the Father before all worlds. Uh, Rather, we need to understand his eternal attribute. That's very clear in our text today. Uh, So so first I want to say we don't want to misunderstand that when we hear that phrase, he is eternally begotten. Uh, Because that that can make us think of a a starting point, right? A moment of creation, a moment of beginning. But that description of Christ being the eternally begotten Son of God... It's a descriptive phrase that we find at at the beginning of this creed. Uh, It's not taking away from the true attribute of Christ's eternality. Um, When we were looking at the Trinity at the beginning of the Athanasian Creed, remember we said, as the Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and the Spirit is eternal. So this idea of, of being begotten speaks to the relationship of the Father and the Son. It's by no means pointing to a temporal timeline. It's not giving a chronology. It's not uh, taking away from the Son's eternal state. And that's important to understand when we hear the the word cited in verse 5, when it's quoting that statement today, I have begotten you. Uh, Wouldn't this seem to be a great proof text for a moment, saying that Christ is not eternally begotten, for after all it says, today! I have begotten you. Um, And I love the way Augustine commented on the use of today in this statement. As it was the Father speaking to the Son. He said, as in the day of eternity, which has neither a beginning nor end, and eternally present has neither future or past. So it's very fair to take those words as a helpful understanding of the, the Son being eternally 
begotten. Uh, when we're thinking of the divine nature of Christ, we don't want to misunderstand that statement of how he is begotten. But rather we want to understand that eternal attribute. That's very clear throughout our text in verses 2 and 10. We're, we're pointed to the eternal attribute of the Son of God. Where in verse 2 it says, The Son He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. There He was at creation, taking part in creation. And in verse 10, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of Your hands. Here we find the eternal aspect of the Son of God, <clears throat> who is there at creation. Uh, in verse 3, we see this eternal uh, attribute of the Son of God uh, in His radiance and glory that's being described. In verse 6, we see the fact that He is the eternal Son of God as He is worshipped by the angels. In verse 8, the kingship of Christ is pointing us to an eternal king, uh, one whose kingdom is forever and ever. Uh, so just as he has no origin in his divine nature, we, we need to understand that, that the Son of God is eternal. It goes hand in hand with the, the first part of the Athanasian Creed we've considered, as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are eternal. Um, but just as he has no origin in his divine nature, we, we need to see a contrast that's clear here. That in his human nature, he does have a, a temporal origin, a beginning that we celebrate uh, when we think of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we think of his humanity, clearly Jesus Christ has a beginning. Um, what good is the final Adam if he's never been born? Uh, he indeed was born, as we're pointed to. Uh, in verse 6, when it says, He again brings the firstborn into the world. Uh, that, that's not just something that could be helpful to point to this idea of the begotten as having the divine nature, who is worthy of praise from the angels. But it can't help but be a reminder of the fact that Christ in His human nature was truly born. This is the same exact word we find in Luke 2, verse 7. Um, that she brought forth her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, Christ coming as the final Adam had to truly be Adam. Uh, he had the human nature that has a beginning. And, and similarly, if, if he's not the final Adam with the beginning in his human nature, then, then what meaning does his death have? What, what meaning does it have as he comes to the cross and dies if he is not truly man? <clears throat> and that's why I wanted to read on to Hebrews 2. Because <clears throat> we see the importance of that flesh and blood, of his true human nature having a true origin. Because otherwise uh, he could not defeat death if he could not truly die. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So he was born to life that death might have its sting taken away. And as he rises from death to life in his very humanity, we're shown the power of eternal life for us all the more. 
It's a reminder for us, beloved, every time death comes, whether it's a loved one, whether it's a dear friend, a fellow Christian, or if that day comes when we see our own imminent death approaching, as we lay on a hospital bed, whatever aspect of death may approach us, we're reminded that that death does not have the final sting because Christ indeed died. Uh, He who had a human origin, his human nature that was truly born, indeed truly died and conquered the power of death. So the origin of Christ and his divinity and his humanity is, is so important when we reflect on this concept of two natures. We can also take away the difference that, that is shown in the idea of perfection, uh, both as we, we stated in the Athanasian Creed and as we find throughout our text. You know, in, in the point 32 of the Athanasian Creed, it says, uh, completely God, completely man. Oh, I'm sorry, it's uh, a statement where he says, uh, I've lost my place in the Athanasian Creed, but it's speaking of his perfection, um, the perfection that is in his humanity and in his divinity. Um, the perfect divine nature is important because here we have two differences that in, on one hand seem the same. We're told he's perfect in his divine nature and perfect in his human nature. Uh, and an important distinction that we need to consider uh, because though he is perfect in his divine nature, it's different than when we say he's perfect in his human nature. Uh, the perfect of the perfection in his divine nature is something that points to an attribute of God. Uh, that, that perfect attribute is not something that can change. It's not something that can be taken away. It's, it's the attribute that defines who our Lord is. Uh, it's the divine nature that we find throughout our text in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, it's pointing once again to the idea of a perfect creator of the perfect king of kings. As we find the creator described in verses 2 and 10, it's a reminder that the son is this perfect creator who, in fact, we can say created the world. That the son of God was there at creation. And as verse 10 is quoting Psalm 102, we're we're clearly being pointed to this son, the son of God at work in creation. And Athanasius, when he was writing against the Arians uh, and and needing to understand the truth of these natures, uh, cited this passage. And he he would say that when the sacred writers say that he is before all ages and that through him he created the world, they proclaim the eternal and everlasting being of the Son and thereby designate him as God. So here we see the perfection of the Son of God seen in creation. And not only in the fact that he is the creator, but the sustainer. Uh, Because as verse 3 goes on in our text, what are we told about this idea of creation? For this one has been counted, uh, in verse uh, verse 3 it goes on to say, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. He sustains or upholds the power of creation by his own word. Uh, this is the, the word of his power, and indeed it reminds us of the very identity of Jesus Christ as the word uh, that we find in the opening of John's gospel. So certainly his, his divinity is seen as the very creator, the Son of God truly is, perfect 
as the creator. And his kingship in the divine way is is a, a sign of perfection as well. In this section of Hebrews, it points to the royalty of Christ, the royalty of the Son. And this isn't something that just points to to his human nature. It points us to the divine king that he is. The perfect king. As the heir of all things, as we're told in verse 2. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Uh, This this idea of the heir of all things, the the one who is over all things, is, is such a wonderful way to describe his divine perfection. And I love the way one commentator, Philip Hughes, put it, talking about this divine nature, where he says, Christ is the heir of all things precisely because God has only one Son and one heir. Christians, it is true, are also called sons and heirs of God. But we are not so in our own right, but solely by virtue of our incorporation into the only begotten Son, with whom alone God is well pleased. And that's a beautiful idea of fleshing out this idea of the the heir uh, of all things, this royal uh, role of the king of kings, that we certainly can say we're children too. We certainly can even say we are heirs, but it's only because of the one true heir, the one true inheritor, the one true child of God. Uh, that we have been given this great gift. So he is the heir of all things, and that way we can say a royal prince, but he is also the king of creation, the king of salvation. Uh, We're being pointed to the the eternal aspect of this king when we see the the promise to David being fulfilled uh, in the second half of verse 5. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. A royal promise that was given to David is being fulfilled in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the kingdom is is described in verse 8. Again, when we consider that kingdom, um, a a fulfillment of Psalm 45, this is an eternal throne we're being pointed to. It's the divine perfection of our Lord, the Son of God, that we're finding through this passage as we are pointed to the Creator, as we're pointed to the Eternal King, uh, we see indeed that statement of perfection in the divine Lord Jesus Christ. And, and notice how the Athanasian Creed very helpfully points out that He's not only perfect in His divinity, but He's perfect in His humanity. As I said, this seems like the same attribute being reiterated. Um, it's the same point on one hand, perfect in divinity, perfect in humanity. But there is an important aspect in which we need to realize a difference here. Uh, A difference in when we're speaking of the divine nature. There is no other option. Uh, Perfection is an attribute. Perfection is describing the truth of who God is. But in in His humanity, we know that there is another option. For it's the option we all have. uh, The way of sin. When we think of him being perfect in the human nature, what an amazing statement that is, reminding us once more of how he is the final Adam. He's the only other man who can make this this statement of perfection and who indeed would face temptation. Uh, To hear that attribute given to the divine nature but also to the human nature is is amazing because it reminds us exactly of what he came to do. 
As we considered in chapter 2, verse 14, the, the, the idea of what he partook in, uh, that he partook in our flesh and blood. And that statement is pointing us to what indeed he had to endure, that he had to bear temptation. And where this is, is something the, the Son of Man had to, to endure on our behalf. Um, and, and so were this not the Son of God and the Son of Man, as we consider this idea of him uh, being perfect in this human nature and perfect in his divine nature, uh, there's only two other options, really. Uh, either he is divine and putting on a show, which isn't really achieving anything for humanity or for us because he's not uh, performing in the flesh what needed to be upheld and paid for. Or he's solely man and just another martyr uh, whose death and struggles are misunderstood and ultimately meaningless. But this perfect divinity and this perfect humanity that we're being pointed to shows us the beauty that he is our deliverer. After speaking about how Jesus Christ is truly flesh and blood, he he immediately moves on to, to point about the deliverance we receive. Uh, that he has destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and released those who through fear of death were all in their lifetime subject to bondage. What a beautiful statement of deliverance we find in verse 15 that is given from the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. The slavery to sin he defeated. Uh, The slavery to Satan uh, the serpent did not win. And even here, as we're pointed to death in this section of Hebrews 2, we're reminded that the slavery to death has been conquered. I was struck by a commentary of John Chrysostom on this section uh, when this idea of death came up, uh, because he really gave his thoughts on funerals. Uh, He said that when I behold the wailings in public places, the groanings over those who have departed this life, the howlings and all other unseemly behavior... I'm ashamed before the heathen and the Jew and the heretics who see it, and indeed before all who for this reason laugh at us to scorn. Um, Now, to some degree, I I would disagree with this point, saying it's a little too hyperbolic, because when a loved one dies, uh, we're still left behind, and we, we lament the wages of sin being death, and that we no longer have the person we love Uh, It can still bring sadness, certainly, to us, even if we are confident that a loved one is in glory. We can mourn at a funeral. But but I agree with his main point here, because when when we're commenting on this verse, it's a reminder that death has no sting. That Christ in his human nature came to bear the the consequence of death, uh, that it might be conquered because of his perfect human nature. And so when we we see the the fact that he came to to partake in humanity with his perfect nature, to deliver humanity with his perfect nature, we're also reminded how he did it. He he upheld his offices uh, with his human nature. Uh, You know, while I focus on, so far I focused on how we can see the kingship and his divinity, it's it's important here to remember too that, that his humanity... His human nature is pointing us to these offices that he has in the the opening of the passage. We see the prophet in verse 3 who has the word of his power. The priest who brings purification of sins in verse 3. The king who has majesty on high in verse 3. 
This prophet, this priest and king, this, this officer who came in true, perfect humanity upheld these duties uh, like no one else could. And certainly while these offices of prophet, priest, and king also point us to his divine nature, it's a reminder of what he did in his humanity as well. Offices that were perfectly upheld. And so certainly Christ's perfection is necessary for our salvation, beloved. Uh, We need to realize the importance of his perfection and divinity to bear our load of sin and the perfection in his humanity as none had ever done uh, to do what none of us could do since the fall of Adam. So uh, just as understanding this perfection is so vital as we find it in the Athanasian Creed, it's also important to, th- to think about how this affects the rank uh, of Christ as well. Uh, where in, in section 33 it speaks about how he is equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Uh, so we have a statement here of, of being equal and being less. That's an important thing to consider when we think of how he is equal in rank in his divine nature, but less in his human nature. That's that's an important concept to understand as well when we're looking at the truth of the Son of God. We we certainly see that equal aspect in his divine nature when we look at at the glory, the radiance that's described in verse three. When we when we hear of this radiant. Uh, this radiant power that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Uh, this, this glory or radiance of, of Christ that's being described here is certainly something pointing to the, the glory of the Godhead. Uh, as John would say in John 1 verse 14, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as Paul would say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, for God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, And, you know, as we've been going through Luke, we've seen this glory. Uh, when, When Christ had the transfiguration... That glory of the Father was seen, and certainly the, the, the equality of glory between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is something important to realize in, in our Lord's divinity. Um, and, and if that point isn't made clear enough, uh, throughout this opening of Hebrews, it, they want to make it clear that, that Christ as the Son of God is equal in acclaim. That we should not make the error of thinking of Jesus Christ as one who is a, a worthy angel or an angel in disguise, because time and again the point is made that the angels praised him. Uh, of, who was it sa- of what angel was it ever said that this is the Son of God? Of what angel was ever uh, given praise by the angels? So he has given the angels acknowledgement. In verse 6 we find that when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels of God worship him. And as we find that passage of Luke 2, the angels certainly Sing praise to the Lord as the Son of God comes. So the angel's response again and again is to worship him. And so there, there can be no doubt of Christ's divine nature that is equal uh, to the Father and the Holy Spirit as we consider the, the triune God at the opening of the Athanasian Creed. Um, but it's so important to realize that, that he's less, 
We're inferior in his human nature. That, that statement is, maybe sounds alarming at first, but, but it's clearly there in the Athanasian Creed, and we, we certainly find it when we consider that statement in Hebrews 2, verse 14. Uh, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Uh, this inferior nature is clear to show us that Jesus Christ is truly man. He partook in our humanity. We considered the importance and the meaning of the incarnation, that, that he was truly a child of Mary, born of the virgin, born truly human, sharing in the flesh and blood. So we can never say his human nature was a, a charade. And in Christ's humanity, he took on flesh to be inferior to the Father in his humanity. He truly died. As we find in verse 14 as well, there was a true end to his humanity. That when he died upon the cross, it was not an illusion, it was not a, a diversion, but truly Christ in his human nature died. Uh, the inferior aspect, uh, the lesser aspect, uh, the nature of flesh truly died. Where Christ in his divinity could not die, Christ in his humanity truly died. And so he is also all the more given meaning here when we're told that he's seated on high. Um, true, the true height of his humanity is being proclaimed here as well. Uh, when we hear that statement describing how Jesus Christ our Lord is seated on high, it's a reminder that it's not solely speaking of his divine nature and glory. It's also a reminder of how in his humanity he indeed was risen. He ascended into heaven. And in Christ's human nature, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, truly flesh and blood on high. So what an important concept to think about when we realize the, the meaning of Christ our Lord and Savior being incarnate, to come and deliver us, his people, from their sins. Uh, and just as important, as I said at the introduction, is to highlight the fact that yet, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is one person. You know, I, I was almost hesitant to make these three points because it sure sounds at places like we're describing two people. But that is the, the mystery and the beauty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Just as we considered in the first half of the Athanasian Creed, we serve one God. This clear description of Christ, truly human and truly God, is one person. Uh, what a beautiful statement we're given in section 34 to 36 of the Athanasian Creed. Although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. Uh, what a, a beautiful statement to describe the oneness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think a helpful way we see that is uh, as an example in his kingship. I mentioned the idea of how he's the king of kings, the Lord of creation, to, to speak of his divinity. And I mentioned how he came to be the office of a king. Now he has a triumphal entry in his humanity. There's a, a way in which we see him as truly God and truly man and, and one single person. Uh, being one true king. 
And I loved a quote from one pastor who said, He is the fulfillment of every messianic hope. In Him as the incarnate Son, the divine and the human meet, and the Davidic kingdom becomes truly the kingdom of God. There we find the, 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 the immensity of uh, the divine nature and the human nature being in one person who loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. We give thanks to the Lord for the good news that he sent his only begotten son, uh, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you were encouraged by Robert's message and that you learned a little something about my hometown, New Holland, Pennsylvania. Please subscribe to Small Town Theologian on Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or your preferred platform so you don't miss future specials and regular shows. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate the show and leave a review to help give the show a boost. And tell a friend about Small Town Theologian. Till next time. Thank you.